Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host Peggy Hughes and on this episode we speak to three brilliant people who have had quite different lives. I'm sure lots of people during lockdown are taking pause and thinking of what might happen after and what they might want to do with themselves and these three are absolute testament that it's never too late to try your hand at something else. Denise Miner is an award-winning crime novelist, um, but she's also written plays, comic books and true crime. Ruth Anderson was a QC, a sheriff and a lawyer, but has now turned her hand to running a second-hand bookshop out of an old pub in Wigtown. And Simon Stevenson, formerly a physician, then screenwriter, memoir writer and now debut novelist. But first we start with Denise Miner. Denise Miner is the author of several books, including most recently The Long Drop, which won the Gordon Byrne Prize in 2017, and Conviction, which was chosen by Reese Witherspoon for her book club in December 2019. Where are you, Denise, and how has lockdown been? Like for you, as, a, as a, I suppose as a, as a writer and a multi-instrumentalist at that, what's it been like? I think that the important thing is to be outward looking and appreciate that this is something that's happening to everybody and not just you and to maybe get involved in a bit of volunteering and see how you can make a contribution instead of just sitting thinking about how you feel all the time. Actually, I work very well when I'm anxious. So it's it's not been too bad or too different for me. And, you know, I've been waking up very, very early and I'm sure that's an anxiety thing and just working a lot of the stuff that, that I'm doing is quite technical, you know, and like copy editing books that are coming out in August and stuff. What's this book you just mentioned that's coming out in August then? That was just, we've got right down into it there. What's coming out? Um, it's a book called The Less Dead and it's a fictionalised version of a, a series of a murders that happened in Glasgow in the late 80s, early 90s of sex street sex workers. One of the things that really struck me about those women was nobody really cared that much and they were always referred to as prostitutes. And in the States, they call them the less dead. These are people who are not valued by society. And it's really about how we prioritise who matters and who doesn't. And there's a lot of talk in crime fiction about the blonde young woman being murdered and how we have to move away from that convention. But my point is that's not about crime fiction, that's about society. We do value blonde young women of marriageable age more than we do other people and that certain people, their cases will hardly cause a ripple. So I wanted to write a book about those women and look at the culture amongst those women because I know women who, who are sex workers and I know women who were around at that time and I know people who had heroin problems at that time. And actually, it was a really rich culture that nobody was really aware of because they were regarded as the lowest of the low. So the story is that it's a woman who goes to meet her birth mother and finds out that she was one of the women who was murdered during this period. And it's about her trying to take ownership of her mother and understand what life was like for her mother and how it wasn't just an unremitting tragedy. And she wasn't just a mishap. She was part of a group of friends and you know, and she had a really significant life. You mentioned there the idea of taking ownership, even though your work has taken all kinds of different directions, theatrical, comic book, obviously the crime books, true crime. But the idea of taking ownership seems to be a thread that binds them all together. Well, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that I really love about like, using lots of different really accessible forms is narratives very set and particularly in populist forms 
And, you know, the perspective is always the same. Police procedurals are about how the cops are always right. You know, it's very often from a very particular class point of view. And I'm really interested in the characters who are off-centre, who are the fat girl in the office, who are the street prostitute. I really want to look at the stories from the point of view of those people. And I think it's, I think it's a familiar enough narrative arc for you to be able to take quite an unusual position. So one of the things that really struck me when I started writing crime fiction was it was very male and it was very much from the point of view of middle class people. I mean, I think that's more pronounced in the States than it is here necessarily. Just that, you know, the idea of crime as a social event wasn't really recognised. It was kind of an assault that happened on middle class people. And I suppose that you were then sort of, I guess, a gap in the market to kind of look at those other voices and other stories. Well, you know, it's so funny you saying gap in the market because when I wrote my first crime book, Uh, Being a crime writer wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing anybody did. And somebody, I remember someone vaguely saying um, something about this guy in Edinburgh who turned out to be Ian Rankin, who was also writing crime fiction. And it was just a way of being a writer that was quite kind of functional. It was a very punk kind of attitude to literature of just have a go and, you know, write something that you would like to read. And you don't have to be technically proficient. You could just make it sound good to you and your pals. The idea wasn't that we were writing high literature. The idea was that we were, you know, writing something for your friends who knew about Italian cafes in Glasgow and knew people who'd survived sexual abuse and didn't go on to be, you know, their highest aspiration was they would be the detective's girlfriend. They'd survived it and they were amazing people. So right at the very beginning, when I look back on my career, it looks like a really shrewd move. (laughs) But it was was kind of professional suicide, to be honest. (laughs) I was going to ask you, Denise, about plays and how you choose the vehicle to best explore that. You know, so for example, with the Brecht and the Mrs. Pontilla and her man Matty, which was out earlier this year, which I was lucky enough to see at the Lyceum, utterly amazing and mad. Just what's the starting point, I suppose, and how do you know that you're going to pursue those ideas in a play or in a sort of true crime book format? Well, there's not as much choosing as you would imagine because I was approached by the director and by David Gregg at the Lyceum to adapt um, Puntilla and they had already decided on the gender swap. And when I'm writing novels as a general rule, you do need the publisher to say, yes, it's all right if you do something completely different like write a true crime because they need to have faith in it and they need to get behind it and promote it. Ideas never really get lost. Sometimes they're in a play that's not very good and then they get moved into a novel and they're brilliant. So there's not as much choice as you would suppose in terms of form. But as a general rule, I'm kind of led by my excitement. And it's so exciting to, I mean, I've always approached my career as you're a woman writer, you're not going to be particularly well remembered, you're not going to be particularly well regarded. I think that's changing. It feels like it's changing. But I don't know if it's changing for me because I'm older. I don't know if it's changing for younger women. I just, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to judge the thing on your perspective, but women artists are never remembered. And you can either be angry about that or you can say, well, what's, what's good about that? What's interesting about that? Well, you know, if you think about it, the reason jazz was invented was because nobody was looking. The reason pop music happened was because nobody knew there was loads of money in it. It's in these little vacuum spaces where no one's peering at it and saying, well, you can't do that. That's not the Academy way. That's where really interesting work gets done. So I've always thought, well, if you're going to be referred to as a regional artist, if you're going to be referred to as, you know, a local idiot does odd thing again, why not just embrace that and do comics, do plays, do dances, 
and make wee films. My cousin's a filmmaker and we made a wee film about our aunties all growing up in the same tiny council house. And, you know, why not just embrace it and just follow your nose? You don't need to have a narrative trajectory to fit in with the history of literature. Still with Pantilla for a wee second, I just, I'm just i interested now in the world having shifted and what that does to certain bits of art. So, for example, there's a book by Sarah Baum called Handiwork, and it's all about isolation and creativity and making. And in the space of time of it coming out and then COVID happening, it's sort of become massively way more prescient than it w- would otherwise maybe have been, if you see what I mean. And just thinking about Pantilla, just the political picture now is just so highlighted, the horrible fissures and the gap between the people with power and the people without. Well, it's amazing. We've got a WhatsApp group with all the cast and the crew. A lot of Pantilla was about sick pay, which seemed very old fashioned when we put it on. Some of the crew were very young. They're coming into the workforce as everyone is self-employed. No one has any rights. You don't get holiday pay. And we had to explain to them why that was relevant and why that was important. And then all of a sudden this happens. And, you know, it's self-evident why it's important why it's essential to unionise, why it's essential that we address those power differentials, how the the discourse of power works. You know, the idea that we're all being civic-minded, but certain people don't have any obligations. There's no social contract where you can buy your way out of the social contract, you know, using emotive family-based language to try and get people to be compliant and go along with it, keeping people on the poverty line so that they have nowhere to go. You know, all those things feel incredibly prescient now. I mean, I wonder how much of a, about the social contract, I guess, as a writer, how much responsibility do you feel one as a writer to sort of circling back to those stories and those narratives that you mentioned at the start? Do you do you feel a responsibility to, to represent those voices or to challenge the kind of political norms? I do think, you know, if you are writing anything, if you're taking up any narrative space, You know, things only look political if they are not enforcing the status quo. But if you think about something like crime fiction, or or take romantic fiction, for example, you know, the the construction, Eva Elouz is a a brilliant Israeli philosopher, and she's not a philosopher, I think she's a social scientist, and she wrote a book called Why Love Hurts, and she sort of pulls apart the notion of there being one person, love being inevitable, love being about suffering, love being about pain, and you know who that ties in for, who that works for. So you know if you're writing a, a, a romantic comedy and the girl puts up with anything, or the the female you know um, is determined that it has to be that one man, that's very very political. If you have a crime fiction book where the police shoot the guy at the end, that's very very political. But it just looks politically neutral because it it ties in with the status quo. So I think all writing is political. I don't think there's such a thing as apolitical writing. But honestly, this is so grim and I think it's going to get grimmer that um, as a writer, I feel my responsibility is to give people some place to go. So my last book was called Conviction and it was written during quite a dark time. And the idea was that, you know, I was thinking about a reader who was also going through a dark time and wanted to run away and get lost in someone else's story. So the character leaves her life and goes off to try and solve a podcast she's been listening to. And, um, and you know, I feel that as a, a warm hand to the elbow for a reader that, you know, maybe escapism would be the kindness that we could offer each other just now. While challenging, you know, the status quo and still while presenting, you know, unheard voices. There's so many stories nobody's told. I want to sort of finish, Denise, by asking you a bit more about what's happening next with Conviction. When I was writing Conviction, 
I, you know, I always saw it as part of a series because there were so many brilliant stories coming out. And there's a brilliant podcast called The Accused. It was a cold case from 30 years ago and a man had been convicted and he clearly not done it. And at the start of season two, these incredibly well-meaning women said, we had an avalanche of letters about cold cases that no one seemed to care about. And we're going to try and investigate some of them, but please be patient with us. And I just thought, yeah, that would happen. Basically, the next book is called Confidence, but each of the conviction books has a theme. So this one is about crimes in the world of antiques and antiquities. London is the centre of illegal sales of things from the Baghdad Museum. So it's, it's really sort of looking at a case that centres around that. Lots to look forward to in there from Denise. How exciting, not one but two new books and I believe an exclusive about the next in the podcast saga with her book Confidence. Very, very exciting indeed. Next up is Simon Stevenson. Simon uh, is a screenwriter in California, but he started his career, as you will hear in our conversation, as a doctor. Now he's the author of an acclaimed debut novel, Set My Heart to Five, that has been optioned by Edgar Wright. And here we started by asking him about his first ever visit to the Wigtown Book Festival. And I believe um, that you have, of course, visited the Wigton Book Festival before. Do you want to cast your mind back for us and tell us a little bit about what that was like, first of all? Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, that was wonderful. I don't have to cast my mind back so much because I think about it all the time because it was so great. I had a memoir in 2011 and uh, I just had, I mean, truly one of, one of the best weekends of my life. Like I, I went by myself and I made a, a bunch of new friends very quickly you know, I did a couple of the, the other festivals and I think you get much more of a sort of sense of community and interaction in Wigton, which, which was just a brilliant experience. I, I also, I mean, I also was lucky enough to, to really meet one of my heroes. So um, I think Robert Twigger is a, is a regular guest with you guys there. When I was a student, I think Robert's book, Angry White Pajamas, came out and my flatmate and I were, were just obsessed with it. It was the, the, the funniest thing we'd ever read and we would quote it to each other endlessly. And uh, at some point during the weekend, there was a, a swimming trip and I found myself in a car with Robert Twigger and he was telling a a story in, in the way that only he can. He was living in, I think, Cairo at the time, and it was the the, the revolution, the Arab Spring was going on, but his main concern was his, his trousers had been stolen for, from his washing line. And he told this incredible story about fighting his way through the revolution to try and reclaim his trousers. And so as soon as I got home, I had to call my flatmate from when I was a student and, and tell him, that, you know, and he couldn't believe that I'd been so privileged to have a, a front row seat to a, a Robert Twigger anecdote. How delightful. We must alert Twigger. He is indeed um, a festival favourite. Well, quite a lot, Simon, it seems, has happened between now and then. You're in a different country. You're you're now, you started out, I guess, in the writing game as a, as a non-fiction writer and your absolutely stunning memoir, Let Not the Waves of the Sea. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about that journey for you now to being a screenwriter and now a debut novelist as well. After I'd written the memoir, I my expectation of myself was I had arrived and now I'm a writer and I'll write a novel because that's what writers do. And none of them took. And and I think, you know, looking back, I think the problem that I had was the memoir was about losing my brother and it had just felt such an essential story to tell. Like there was, there was no way I, I, I couldn't, you know, not write that book. And everything else afterwards, I, I struggled to find. I was a physician is the job I'm trained to do. So I went back to being a physician um, and then I started writing some some screenplays. And funnily enough, the, the screenplay that I wrote was about a, 
a depressed doctor who didn't like his job and desperately wanted to change. That script, through a, a fortuitous combination of events, got some attention out here in Los Angeles, and I came out to do some meetings, and suddenly it felt like I had at least the prospect of a career here, and I had a the plan was always to write novels, but it turned out that screenwriting was the thing that I could do in that moment when I didn't feel like I had a novel in me. And then, of course, ironically, all these years later, the novel turns out to be inherently entwined with screenwriting and also the move out here to California. So I think life has a funny way of getting you where you need to be, you know. About the novel then, Set My Heart to Five, tell us, please, if you would, just what was the starting engine then from the physician and the screenwriting? How did it coalesce? I got a job writing a movie at a animation company in San Francisco, who I'm contractually not allowed to name yet. And what they specialize in is movies which tell emotional stories. It's like a laboratory for emotion. So, so, so my day job was about trying to write emotional stories. And the other odd thing was I was living in the Bay Area. It's such a weird place you know every it seems like every second person you meet has a startup company and the startup companies are always for things which sound relatively innocuous but are actually horrific so they they tend to you know you'll meet someone at a party and they're doing a startup that's for euthanasia on demand or something you know it's sort of like this this is not a good idea so a combination of living in a world of emotion and then kind of being exposed to that slightly dysfunctional tech world. And then also probably, in all honesty, I was pretty lonely. You, you know, it felt like I had this dream situation where I was in this city that I'd always fantasized about living in someday. And yet spending quite a lot of time by myself and spending my days working on, you know, how to make other people feel emotion. And I think those things all just kind of coalesced. I remember very clearly there was a particular Saturday evening when kind of got the idea for all these things coming together. And, and I knew I was going to write in the first person about an android who wanted to feel things. And I took this long walk up over the Golden Gate Bridge, actually. And without giving anything away, obviously, that becomes a, an important feature in the book. So, yeah, just about the book and about about Jared, who's the, the bot dentist protagonist, I should say, that, that you that you mentioned. How does that collage of ideas and, I guess, the think grief or loneliness or empathy, the things that you want to pursue, how do they take on the architecture that a book like this has then? Partly, so, so, so the novel is called Set My Heart to Five. It's the story of an android, Jared. It's written in the first person. Jared, like all androids, has been programmed for functionality, for just doing his job and his job is as a dentist a lot of the book though is kind of a love letter to movies and and to a very particular kind of movie which is the movies that i and i think a lot of us grew up watching the movies of the 80s and 90s which clearly had their flaws with with hindsight but what they always did seem to have was was tremendous heart and tremendous emotion Jared sees those movies. What I was trying to do overall was I was trying to write something with the scope and scale of those movies. And that was definitely some sort of quite strong influence. Um, so in some ways, the novel follows probably a fairly traditional architecture of a story like that. But hopefully it's a new take on it. I mean, Jared's cinema going is kind of an, an emotional education for him, which is really delightful to be on that journey with him. Is that what films then, and you touch on it a little bit, but is that what films were for you growing up? 
always so much of my memory is actually like like I find it quite hard to remember which particular year an event happened in or you know where I was but I can always remember exactly where I saw pretty much every movie and how I felt and kind of who I was at the time you know obviously you go to the movie to see the movie and that's fun but in terms of emotions, if I'm feeling sad or bored or lonely or a dozen other things, going to the movies is, tends to be what I do to make that better. There's a Charles Bukowski poem that I've always liked called Popcorn in the Dark. And the first line is something, you know, terribly Bukowski that hasn't aged well in the Me Too era, which is when they start talking about the other woman, it's time to go and eat popcorn in the dark. That's always said something to me because I think there is this huge comfort in just going and sitting in the dark for two hours in the company of strangers. And I think not being able to do that has has been a problem, particularly at this time, because with the world in such disarray, I would find it very reassuring to go and see a movie and watch Brad Pitt save the world or something. And yet we can't do that right now. Just about the shared experience of cinema watching in a theatre that doesn't happen, say, with reading a book, which is very much a sort of singular experience. And I was interested in what you're saying about how you make a book that's like that big operatic sweep of a film. I think part of it is drawing a lot on the screenwriting side and kind of reverse engineering it from there a bit in that movies can kind of follow a certain kind of formula. As always, the trick is not to just repeat the formula, but find an interesting way to change it a bit. With the book, because I've been a screenwriter for a long time now, I think my brain just slightly works in that way. And and, and I do love story. I mean, I know that the things that always work best for me are things that really are stories, you know, that you finish it and you think that was a good story well told, you know, for better or for worse, just because of the vast amounts of money people have to spend to get them made. Movies tend to have pretty strong stories a lot of the time. And one of the jokes in the book is that androids will actually be very good screenwriters in some ways, because so much of it is a formula and an algorithm. You know, there's a lesson that ultimately it takes more than that. But Slightly following that classical art, I think, has hopefully helped. I did want to ask you a little bit about how much the novel is kind of a comment on on the film industry. And, you know, there's, not to give any spoilers, it's it's packed with there's love and hope and loads of humour and peril, and not to dwell on the peril. What's that saying then about the essentially collaborative nature of, of filmmaking versus the solo authorship of the author? I love collaboration. I, you know, it is the best thing. Film has this slightly odd take on it where, you know, you mentioned the authorship of the author, which obviously happens in novel writing, but in cinema, the authorship is the director, right? The director's the author and everyone else is there to, for better or for worse to serve his or her vision. That's often great, you know, and, and there are some directors who are tremendous writers and have incredible senses of story. If you ever get the chance to read any of Edgar Wright's screenplays, they're genuinely brilliantly written. But what often happens, particularly out here in Hollywood, is really the only bit of the process that the people who are supplying the money, which is the studio, can control is the script. Because, you know, once they start shooting it, what happens on the day happens on the day kind of thing. As a screenwriter, you have an awful lot of people telling you what should happen and giving you notes. But ultimately, it's really the the director that's the author and, and that has, has the final say. And I think sometimes when you see a 
not great movie, I think a lot of writers, screenwriters would have a lot of sympathy for the screenwriter because, you know, mostly your movies don't get made unless you're really quite good. But often something happens to the script between everyone deciding they love it and the movie getting made. Part of the impetus for writing the book was having spent all these years being told what to do by every producer and studio person and director and, and, and actor and, 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 you know, everyone else who has a say. I really, what I wanted to do was just, you know, say the things that I wanted to say. And the great thing about writing a novel is that you kind of do get more of that chance. The screenwriter's revenge. I did want to ask you a little bit about this film, though, which I'm, I'm, um, I understand has been optioned. Will all going well become a film? Um, what, what will that be like for you then from the other side of that process? And how involved would you as a screenwriter want to be or get to be in that? I am obviously I'm completely thrilled by the whole thing. It's really a dream come true. The director that's optioned it is Edgar Wright and it's his usual producers who are fantastic and are people that I've I've actually worked with quite a bit over the years. He is such a, you know, such a fantastic fil- filmmaker and also he's as as I mentioned like like he's a great writer and he's a great just a great storyteller. You know, he really has a great sense of telling stories on a big scale. So where we are is I've I've written a couple of drafts of the script. It's funny because when I've in the past I've written what are called uh, spec screenplays, which is, you know, you have an idea and you write the screenplay and then you take it out and try and sell it to someone. And, you know, what kind of often happens then is everyone loves it and someone options it or buys it. And then it goes through that process of being kind of changed beyond all recognition. And, you know, I, I, I definitely, some of those things I felt a little bit hard done by, but every, I think every working screenwriter has 15 of those stories where it's happened to them. It's funny having written the book, I'm far more comfortable and relaxed saying the movie should be the director's vision of the story. And I've said my piece, I've published my book, you know, the version of the story that it was important to me to tell in the first instance is the book and that's out there. And now I have just absolute trust and respect and enthusiasm for, you know, whatever Edgar wants to do with it. Thank you so much to Simon. His debut novel is as if Pixar remade the Charlie Kaufman film adaptation with a dash of Be Kind Rewind and it's utterly delightful and spellbinding and uplifting and I can assure you that you will definitely not have read anything quite like it before. And finally in this episode, it would be remiss not to catch up on one of Wigtown's newest bookshops, which is run by the ineffable Ruth Anderson, former QC sheriff and lawyer, who moved to the area a couple of years ago and took it upon herself to convert the former Grapes pub into the very beautiful Well-Read Books. Tell us a wee bit about the view from where you are just right now, if you would. Well, I'm standing in my shop in Wigton, I have a a new website for the shop and I wanted to try online sales, but I didn't want to go down the Amazon or Abe route. So I have spent the last many weeks in here just cataloguing books to try and achieve a figure of 1,000 onto the site, hopefully by the end of next week. But I'm really glad that I've done it because it's the kind of task, really, that I'm not sure I would have managed to do had the shop been open. And I've also organised and started a crime book club. It's called Dark Deeds Book Club. So it's a postal club. And for an annual subscription, a subscriber gets 12 books each year. What an absolutely lovely idea. Have you always been a reader? Yes, always been a reader. It's not all highbrow. I quite like crime fiction. I don't read as much non-fiction as I really feel that I should. 
I think a lot of people think there's a great glamour in the life of the person running a bookshop. Do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of a romantic notion. What's been your route to running a bookshop? You've had a, a whole other life before this one. Yes, I was in law for over 40 years and I retired in June of 2017 and I had always come down to the book festival and various events here and about a year or so before retiring I had bought a little cottage with a view to coming down, becoming a bit more involved perhaps as a volunteer and once I retired I started working as a volunteer in the Wigton Book Festival Company shop and people kept saying why don't you open your own shop and as I have done with so many things in my life Peggy I didn't really think it through <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing in August 2018 I bought the premises which formerly was the Grapes Bar so when we actually got the keys at the beginning of August the dirty pint glasses were still sitting and there was still alcohol in the optics behind the bar that I'm standing at at the moment so the local tradesmen were fantastic and we got opened first day of the festival in 2018 which was the 21st of September so the whole place was turned round in about six seven weeks fantastic oh amazing do you know I was there for the opening of your beautiful shop Ruth it is it is you've they've done it because and I remember the grapes pub as well quite a change what are the kind of the features of the pub that live on in the bookshop do you know what I mean like some of the wee quirky bits yes I've kept the bar the bar's my counter basically I've kept one or two of the glasses. I put flowers in the pub glasses and I've got things like plastic jugs with the Johnny Walker red label, things like that on them. And I converted what was the gents' toilet into the crime room. So I thought that was the appropriate place, the Absolutely. former gents' toilet. Great stuff altogether. You're in a wonderful community of, of bookshops and booksellers there, Ruth. What difference does that make? Oh, it makes a huge difference. The only thing is we tend not to see one another because we're all working in our bookshops. It does seem, though, that Wigtown, I mean, it's it's obviously the book town and so on, but it is just such a magnet for book-loving people. That's the other thing I've found, because I maybe I'm a bit nosy, but I quite like to know where people have come from and what brought them here. And it's just amazing the number of people who say, we didn't know this was here. I've not had a single person come in here saying, actually, it's been a bit of a washout. Mm, <laughs> Everybody great. has really enjoyed their time here. I also think, as booksellers, what our aim should be, not necessarily to sell to that particular person, but if that particular person is looking for a book and the book is in the town, then we've got to try and get that mm -hmm. person and the book united, even if it's in somebody else's shop. Oh, I love that idea. It's like a challenge among the sellers. Yes. Uh -huh. I mean, there's no point in saying, no, I don't have a copy and they just go out empty handed. You say, well, have you tried so and so? Or let me phone and I'll find out I think they may well have one. I've just a couple more wee questions for you, Ruth, if I may. Just about the law. You've told us, you know, you were in the law for 40 years. In what way, if at all, and maybe not at all, but d did that life equip you for the life of a bookseller? Is there any overlap or anything that you took with you from the legal profession? 
No, not really, but it's interesting. I have overlapped with quite a lot of customers. It's amazing the number of lawyers that I've had come in here. Some knew that I was here, other ones didn't. And they've come to the county and I've said, I know you. Ah, you're Ruth Anderson, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, it's like seeing somebody completely out of context. So the last time they saw me, I might have been in the High Court in Glasgow with all the gear on, and here I am now standing in a second-hand bookshop in Wigan. How remarkable they've tracked you down. Is that to say then that lawyers are also keen readers in the in the general way? Yes, certainly used to be because a lot of people who, the older generation of lawyers, they did an arts degree first mm-hmm. and then they did a law degree. So they did humanities first of all and then they did law and I think that applies certainly to the, I'm not saying that the younger generation don't but a lot of the reading that I have done in my life was the result of recommendations from other lawyers that I was working with. How nice to think of that. Do you, would you say that your that that background gave you your love of crime fiction and? No, I just think I mean crime fiction is such a huge seller in this country, mm-hmm. and you've always had a nice choice. I mean, you get people like Willie. I've put a lot of people into William McIlvany's books because I think they're just terrific, mm-hmm. and of course. William McIlvany taught at Irvine Royal Academy, which was the school that I was at in Ayrshire in the 1960s. And he came then as a young teacher and had just published his first book, which was Remedy is None. He must have been like a rock star, was he not? Because he was so dapper and then he's this author turning up to teach my word. Dapper doesn't cover it. He was so handsome. (laughs) Oh, and remain handsome all these days. Did, so you can did. just imagine the twittering that went on <laughs> when oh, Willie McIlvany arrived. Thank you so much to Ruth. Do check out the bookshop's website at wellreadbooks.co.uk where you'll find information about the Dark Deeds Book Club. And thank you to Denise Miner and to Simon Stevenson. And thank you to you for joining us for this episode. It's been lovely to spend a bit of time with you and we hope that you'll join us again next week. Take care for now. Bye-bye.